Well, we're looking uh, this morning at the first section of Psalm 32. It is a Psalm of David, as the heading tells us. The heading is part of the inspired text, by the way. And the word muscle means instruction. And so here we're going to be, by God's help, we trust, instructed in what this psalm is telling us about. It's really a psalm that follows on from Psalm 51, at least chronologically speaking. Psalm 51, if you know your Bible, is a psalm of repentance by David. Uh, it starts off, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of thy tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. And this is not only a general sense of sinfulness that uh, David is talking about. It is his repentance for some particular sins, some very ugly sins that are recorded in 2 Samuel and chapter 11. Where he, uh, we're told that he committed adultery with Bathsheba the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Let me just find my place. 2 Samuel 11. And having committed adultery with her, um, she sent the message back to David that she was now expecting. And David then continued, we might call his, what we might call his cover-up, uh, and tried to get it that Uriah, her husband, would be the one uh, the supposed father of the child, but Uriah, for various reasons to do with his military campaigning, he wouldn't uh, go along with that, with, with the plot, as it were, uh, in all innocence. And eventually David has Uriah the Hittite sent to the hottest part of the battlefield uh, in order that he might be killed. And then David married Bathsheba. So we're looking on here several months, probably, of cover-up, several months of not confessing his sins. And as we think of this Psalm 32, there is a sense in which this is a psalm all about blessednesses. And the first blessedness must surely just be the sheer relief that David must have felt when he did repent of these sins. He describes what he was going through before that in verses 3 and 4. When I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned into the drought of summer. He's speaking here about the experience of someone who knows that they're a sinner, someone who's become aware of the, the greatness of their sin in the sight of God and the effect of not confessing, of not repenting. It brings turmoil, it brings restlessness. As it says here, it brings a lack of sleep. Day and night, thy hand was heavy upon me. It brings health problems even. My moisture is turned into the drought of summer, implies some sort of health issue that he had. And this is therefore describing someone who has a guilty conscience. Guilty because they have done wrong and they know it and yet they're not 
coming off it and confessing it and repenting it of it. Now, I may be describing, in fact, the experience of someone in this meeting room today. I do not know. God knows you and knows your heart. Uh, and I remind you of what the Bible says, that he who, conf- he who covers his sins shall not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them shall find mercy. Proverbs chapter 28. Uh, and, the, and the Proverbs also say that the way of transgressors is hard. It is hard. As God moves in on you, it becomes an impossible task to resist him. And of course, if you do resist him, if you do what the Bible calls quench the spirit, if you do keep pouring water onto this blessed ministry of the spirit to show you your sin, then eventually the risk is that God will depart from you. And then you will have no more conscience about it. You'll be very happy in your sin and you'll die and go to hell. You'll die in your sins. And David here, although at the time probably he didn't feel that way about it, David, in fact, is under the ministry of the Spirit, which was going to lead him to a blessed relief. He was a little bit like a child in a classroom, a young, youngish child with a sweet in his mouth. He's hidden there under his tongue. And he's not prepared to give it up. It's a darling sin. It's a very precious thing to him, this adultery that he has committed, this relationship that he's entered into illegitimately. And he's not going to give it up. But you see, God has him in his grip. And maybe this is, again, speaking to anybody who's in this state of a thoroughly guilty conscience and no excuse I want to say to you, firstly, you have a great privilege. God has not forgotten you. God is continuing to deal with you. But secondly, you have a great danger. The danger is, of course, that God will, the Holy Spirit will eventually leave you. And then you feel okay about it and you go on to do other things that are wrong. But as I say, the end is dreadful. He has such a relief so that he can use this word blessed repeatedly. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity and in whose spirit there is no guile. Now that sense of guilt, that sense of not being right has gone. It's blessed. It's, it's such a relief. And do, would you not want to go into that? Do you want to continue miserably? Do you want to continue until eventually, whether or not you like it, the confession is wrung out from you? We think of some in the Bible who went through that. People like Achan, who touched the accursed thing. Judas Iscariot, who sold his Lord for 30 pieces of silver. Or King Saul. And yes, there was confession, but... It was a very black and bleak sort of situation. They were confessing, but we don't know what happened to them. Did they go to hell? Judas Iscariot certainly did, we're told. He was a son of perdition. Isn't it much better just to come off it and to own up 
and confess your sin? Notice that David doesn't now give excuses. I expect as as the king, he did have excuses for a while. Things like, oh, well, all the other kings do do this sort of thing. All the other kings, you look at the king of Syria or the king of Babylon or wherever it may be, they've got dozens of wives and concubines. Why shouldn't I do it? And he no doubt fully have worked out some sort of justification. But notice now, the justification, self-justification is not there. In fact, he is so prepared to face what he has done. We have different words used for his sin. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven because your sin, our sin, is to uh, stray from, to go from that perfect law of God, his perfect laws concerning loving him and loving our neighbor. Then he speaks about iniquity, that, that inward twist, that inward uh, twistedness, that bias towards sin. This is something that arises from inside us. Uh, he, he speaks here of sin, of course, which is missing the mark, uh, as is often said as we seek to define sin. It's missing the mark. It's just falling short of the glory of God. It's not reaching the standard that God requires. But now, you see, he's like pilgrim at the cross. The burden has rolled from his back. And I say, is that not something you would long for, a blessedness, a blessed relief? And it's quite clear what you have to do, what any of us have to do. It's uh, spelt out in first letter of John, chapter 1. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanseth us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What a promise that is. If you confess, confess to God your sin, he will forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. We live amongst the people who say they have no sin. We were there once. We said we had no sin. We may have said it in so many words. We may have recited creeds about it, but we didn't really mean it deeply in the way that David does here. We live in such a society. And it reminds us, as someone has said, it's forgiveness that forms the church. The church is made up of people who know that they have been forgiven. When someone says they want to be a member of the church, this is one of the things that a responsible church leader will look for. Do they know forgiveness? Have they sensed and experienced the forgiveness that is in and through Christ? Well, it's a blessed relief. And secondly, this psalm teaches us of blessed justification. Those two verses at the beginning of Psalm 32 are taken up in another part of the Bible, in Romans chapter 4. Uh, If you turn to Romans chapter 4, if you've got your Bible with you, you might like to look at the first part of that that chapter. 
He has something to say, does the Apostle Paul, here about Abraham, about how he was justified by faith and how this was not a reward for him, but it was God's grace. And then the Apostle goes on to say in verse 5, but to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness, even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. He's speaking of a particular blessedness, the blessedness of not having to look inside and scrape around in your own soul and in your own moral and spiritual aspirations and behavior in order to scrape together a righteousness that God will accept. But in fact, to look away from yourself, completely away from yourself, to the righteousness of another, even Jesus Christ. That's why he doesn't say, blessed is the man to whom God imparteth righteousness without works. Because in part, God does impart righteousness to his people, but that righteousness that he gives within us is still mingled with our sin, with our indwelling sin. But that righteousness that saves us is imputed to us. That means it's reckoned to our account, but it's not our righteousness. It's the righteousness of Christ. And this is the radical difference, of course, between what the Bible teaches about being righteous in God's sight and what, sadly, many parts of the professing church teach concerning being righteous in God's sight. They say, well, do your best and God will be sincere and God will accept that. In effect, they're saying, muster as much righteousness as you can and God will accept that. But God doesn't accept that because God is holy and he demands complete holiness and the man who like David knows his own heart knows that there's iniquity transgression sin guilt and all of that there lurking around needing to be cleansed but meaning that my righteousness is altogether insufficient filthy rags in the sight of God unable to present me faultless before the throne of glory but he says Blessed is the man to whom God imputeth righteousness without works. Nothing David could do now could atone for his sin. Nothing. In fact, the sins he had committed of adultery and murder under the old covenant code were technically to be dealt with by stoning, by execution, by capital punishment. There was no work he could do that would make him right in the sight of God. He needed someone else's righteousness. And this is the glorious gospel of our Lord and Jesus Christ, that God provides a righteousness for you. So you say, my righteousness is in heaven. My righteousness is secure. It's the righteousness of Christ. And God looks on you and he says, I cannot see sin. I can only see the righteousness of my son, Jesus Christ. And there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Listen to how John Owen, the 17th century Puritan, 
put it. He says, poor souls are apt to think that all those whom they read or hear of to be gone to heaven went thither because they were so good and so holy. Yet not one of them, not any one that is now in heaven, Jesus Christ alone accepted, did ever come thither any other way but by forgiveness of sins. They're in heaven because of the righteousness of Christ imputed to them. They're in heaven because that righteousness means that God can forgive them justly and righteously through Christ. Is that you? Have you been justified by faith, as the Bible puts it, without works, but by faith in Christ? So blessed relief, blessed justification. Thirdly, we note in the psalmist, blessed compassion. Look at verse 6. For this shall everyone that is godly pray unto thee in a time when thou mayest be found. Surely in the floods of great waters they shall not come nigh unto him. He's moving on now from his own experience. He's, He's making a principle here based on what had happened to him. His sin, God bringing him to repentance and the knowledge that he has no iniquity now imputed to him, that righteousness is his. And he's now making a principle. He's now saying, well, this is a principle that I have discovered. For this shall everyone that is godly pray unto thee in a time when thou mayest be found. What he's saying is this, I have discovered this, that it is possible to find God. Did you realize that? It's possible to find God. There is a time when he may be found. The Bible makes quite a lot of that. The prophet Isaiah, for example, says, Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. When may God be found? Well, in general terms, he may be found any time up to the second coming of Jesus Christ, up to the end of the world, or up to your death, whichever comes first. But in specific terms... He draws near to us, particularly at times. And it's as though the the whisper of the Spirit in our hearts is saying, seek God. This is a moment you can turn to him. This is a moment when he is near. Once more, you're hearing the truth of the gospel. Once more, your conscience knows it needs forgiveness. It needs mercy. Once more, you're aware of the reality of an eternal God. This is a time when he may be found. And everyone who is godly, that is, everyone who has within them a a spirit of seeking the Lord, will make use of that time. This is the opportunity. Because there's another kind of time coming, And he looks on this with great compassion. There's another time coming when there are floods of great waters. I think he must be looking back here to the flood, the universal flood in the time of Noah, when it was just too late for people to seek the Lord. When that flood came, the waters from within the earth and the waters from the heavens together caused the whole world to be flooded. And it was a catastrophe and millions were swept 
into eternity in their sins. Just Noah and his family saved. And he's saying, look, this is a principle. There are great waters which will be, make it too late. There's the great waters of death. The great waters of such incapacity of mind that you just cannot find the mind, as it were, to turn to God. That's gone now. Incapacity, which means that the floods of great waters have already overwhelmed you. So he has compassion as he sees so many people heading for the final judgment of God. And he's saying there is a time when God can be found. It's blessed to have such a compassion, such a concern for others. It's a sign that you have been forgiven, of course. As Jesus often taught that, in fact, it's part of the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those that trespass against us. We forgive them because you've forgiven us. We've had that small, relatively small debt of our, just our sin, and we can now forgive that huge debt of what sins others have committed against us. We can have a compassion for others. And then finally, in this section of the psalm, in verse 7, we note a blessed Humility, thou art my hiding place. Thou shalt preserve me from trouble. Thou shalt compass me about with songs of deliverance. He's no longer now the king strutting around in his self-importance and he can sin if he wants. He can live the kind of life that kings are accustomed to. And it doesn't, it doesn't, he doesn't care anything what others think. And he's not strutting around, is he? There's a sense in which he knows he's vulnerable. Thou art my hiding place. Why do we go use hiding places? We do that when we feel in danger. What does he feel in danger of? Well, perhaps the storms of life, but perhaps also the storms of temptation. He's now aware that, that he has a particular weakness in this area that his adultery of Bathsheba has, has shown and, and his murder of Uriah the Hittite by proxy. And he's aware then that he's vulnerable, that there's something greater than him, which is the power of sin, and perhaps Satan himself. We don't know all that King David was aware of because he lived millennia ago before the whole of the Bible was written, but uh, he was aware enough of his need of a hiding place. Thou shalt preserve me from trouble. It is a sign of grace in the heart when there is humility. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. He's not brash. He's humble. He's aware now of what Jeremiah taught, that the heart of man is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And he doesn't say, well, that's them out there, but I'm okay. He knows that he's part of that Humanity, whose heart is desperately wicked. That heart that even in a converted person has still what the Bible calls the flesh. That is the lingering remains of indwelling sin. It's no longer in dominion, but it is present. It's no longer ruling the country, but it is a guerrilla force operating from ruined buildings 
and lurking places. No longer does it control the seat of government, but it's out there in various places lurking, ready to create violence and mayhem. It's called the flesh. And here's a sign of the blessedness of what the gospel does in us, that increasingly it makes us aware that the flesh can overcome us. It makes us aware that we have to walk humbly with our God. And we need his protection. Let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape, that ye may be able to bear it. Thou art my hiding place. The Lord Jesus Christ, he's called Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And that saving goes on after we've been converted to him. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runs into it and is safe. The name of the Lord Jesus reflects the character of the Lord Jesus. He is the saviour. He died that we might be forgiven. He died that we might be kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. He died so that every day of our Christian lives we might overcome sin and walk in newness of life. And we need to always remember that that is a tremendous need that we have to look to the Lord Thou shalt compass me about with songs of deliverance. He is a delivering God. And in a sense, Psalm 51 and Psalm 32 remind us that he's a delivering God to the uttermost of everyone for whom Christ died. Everyone who's known the grace and the cleansing of God will indeed experience repentance and then forgiveness.